I'm like, yes! You're going into all my decks with Ice Cross Afters. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Magic the Gathering Under the Hood. I'm your host, Chris, and I'm joined, as always, by Joe. Say hi, Joe. Hello, everybody. Joe, level one judge, talking to you again. So, I have a question for you all. Do you like playing rock, paper, scissors? Because, in essence, that's what this episode is about. Because we'll be covering all the different deck archetypes and how they fare against each other. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, ideas want to just reach out and talk to us there are multiple ways for you to do that uh you can email us at mtg under the hood you can find us on facebook and at uh mtg under the hood and twitter at mtg under the hood so joe with local lgs you know getting back into full swing and everything what have you been working on deck wise we talked in our last episode how i was working on a modern deck but i i did not want to invest a lot into a deck where i i know i'm not going to get to play it extensively but i wanted something that i would like you know and you had talked to me about looking at what you have as far as a standard deck goes and branching out well i sort of tried to do that I went to a different, you know, time period for standard. Uh, I, I had found the exalted mechanic, and I really liked it. And I always thought it was a lot of fun. I know it's an old mechanic uh, from the Shards of Alara block, but I found a lot of cheap cards that I could put together that would make a deck based off of exalted. So we're giving it a shot. It is it is a Bant deck primarily a white deck because that's the the main color for exalted it's going to run a lot of really uh, small casting creatures with a little bit of removal to try to interact with opponents that may get in the way but the idea is that you just slam a bunch of creatures onto the battlefield that all have the exalted ability and you swing in with one creature all of the exalted triggers will happen making it massive your opponent is either going to have to send a bunch of creatures at it in order to block it to actually kill the exalted creature, or I'll slowly be able to just overrun the the opponent and, and to where each time they block, another creature is going away. Threw in a couple bombs that can make the deck even a little bit more impressive with cards like Rafik of the Many, which if gives a, a single attacking creature double strike. There's another one that gives a single attacking creature lifelink. And then one of my favorites actually gives all other creatures exalted. So all of my creatures will have exalted, exalted, and each of them trigger independently. So I can actually get double exalted triggers off of my creatures. Um, and I got one more that gives me a second attack phase if I only attack with one creature. And again... <laughs> Because Exalted triggers on attack, if I attack with one creature, then the enchantment is Finest Hour. Finest Hour will kick in for that that that, uh, that creature. So I get to untap it, and then I get a second attack phase. If I attack with the same creature, all the Exalted triggers happen again. And so it'll get double Exalted, just making it bigger and bigger. The only problem I've run into so far is finding an efficient way to get Trample. I am going to use Simic Charms because they they will 
allow for some flexibility in interaction. And if I really have a massive creature, I can slam a Simic Charm, give it plus two, plus two, and trample, and just overrun the opponent. But, hey, we're going to see what happens. I mean, the whole deck was less than 100 bucks, so... I mean, you can't go wrong there. <laughs> for a modern deck, that, I, and I'm excited about playing it, so we'll give it a shot. Chris, what's your new deck for this week? New deck idea for this week? So I've actually been working on a few. I had an old mono red popper burn uh, deck, but that I'm turning into a modern uh, mono red burn deck. Um, I'm also working on a retooling my popper mill deck, and because a friend of ours got us. Uh, Tasha's hideous laughter. Right. I'm going to be building my mono. It's a mono blue splash black. It's mostly going to be mono blue. Black is just there for removal and stuff like that. Gotcha. Um, it'll be a modern mill deck, and I'm really like I'm trying to find um, cards that I can that I'm feeling comfortable selling so that I can just buy all the other cards that I need because I because I had a my previous dimmer mill deck I mm -hmm. still have the shock lands the right. check lands so I have the mana base for it already so I which is really the most expensive part of a modern deck oh, Let, yeah. let's be honest the the mana base is incredibly expensive oh yeah I have four check lands four shock lands and four fetch lands exactly I'm like cool golden um, so I have the mana base for that. I just need to get the cards for it. Um, and I'm also toying around with a mono blue tempo home deck that revolves that only has like a play set of three creatures mm. and they all are transform abilities. And so, um, so I'm building, trying to figure out a way to build around that. All right. Just so that I could have a mono blue, like, tempo aggro deck. Yeah. And don't worry, we will be covering these uh, deck names later on in the episode. Now, now that we have that out of the way, we have some words to live by. I'll take the first one, and Joe will take the other two, because those are more in his wheelhouse. So the word to live by that I have for you is piloting. Now, piloting is a slang term that's often used... Um, for someone uh, playing their deck. If they are playing their deck, they're still kind of getting... They know it, but they're still trying to hammer out all the ins and outs. But if someone's piloting their deck, that means they know it inside and out, front to back, top to bottom, left to right. Like, they know how everything works in it down to, like, the sign, down to, like, the ladder. And so if someone's being able... So if someone's able to pilot their deck, they're pretty much able to master their deck. Joe, what are yours? Mine are two that actually come from the comp rules. Uh, today we're going to talk about active player and non-active player. You've probably had some experience with these terms, even if you don't already realize it. The active player is the player whose turn it is. The active player is able to play all card types as long as you're following time restrictions and the active player gets priority first whenever anything goes on. The non-active player is the player whose turn it isn't, or in multiplayer games, the players whose turn it isn't. 
Non-active players are only able to play spells that can be cast at instant speed. Also, non-active players are never able to play a land on an, uh, uh, when you are the non-active player. So yeah, and non-active player gets, uh, gets to respond with priority at all times, so you know, you'll get priority second whenever the, the active player gives it up. And that's basically it. Not too much to it, but two very important words, especially as you get into competitive magic. All right, so let's get into the focus of this episode with the deck archetype names. Why name a deck? Naming a deck helps you easily know the difference between your decks without listing out every individual card. It also provides a shorthand way of explaining your deck in as few words as possible. And then it also helps classify large numbers of decks into general groups with slight differences. Um, I know that there's a website that... uh, I can't remember what it is, but it's where you can go to find um, deck lists. Mm -hmm. And over on the side, it has singularity percentages. And what those singularity percentages are is how unique that one deck is compared to all the other ones that are populated in that list. Okay. Um, I tend to go for the ones that are on the higher end of singularity just because (laughs) those ones are usually the most fun to play and they're the most jank and they're the most beautiful ones if you look at it through rose tinted glasses yeah well and let's be honest it, it's important too that we we think about that singular that uniqueness mm-hmm. idea uh because there are a number of decks that will fall under one general archetype name even ones that become really popular and standard they may have the same archetype but there's always going to be a couple cards difference someone it, whether it's personal preference or experience with the deck and what works best for that particular player you're you're never not never you are rarely going to get two decks that are exactly identical especially the higher up in competition that you go so why uh, so we covered why we named the deck but what's in the name well, it's a generalization of the purpose of the deck. It's usually a shorthand phrase to list a uh, shorthand term or phrase to list the colors being played. It's an emphasis on the most important cards that make the deck function. And commander decks tend to name their decks off the commander and what the deck does to win. Um, for the last one, my Sir Conrad deck, that's literally what we know it as. Is It's built around yep. Sir Conrad and another name that I could have for it is Graveyard Shenanigans because I just want to play with my graveyard the entire game. Um, like, there's... Well, there's the, some of the more uh, classic ones from, like, Standard would be a Boros Aggro. Yeah. Right? And that takes the, the idea of, all right, you, you have the shorthand term for the colors that are being played, Boros, telling your you know yourself or your opponents that... You're playing the red-white color combination predominantly. And then aggro, which we'll talk about in a little bit. You know, aggro tends to be an aggressive deck. It doesn't give your opponent precisely the cards that you're going to play. It doesn't tell them the exact method you're using to win. But you're able to have a conversation with people. And if you say, I'm playing a Boros aggro deck, people have a general idea basically immediately of how your deck will function, what you're going to do, and if, if they go up against you in combat or, or, or in a match, how they should react. Yeah. So. so speaking of deck type matchups, there are three things that you 
can kind of generally use to like classify decks. Um, the first one is threats versus answers. Um, is uh, a threat is a card that can win the game if it's left unchecked, and then an answer is a card that deals with or removes a threat. Uh, then there's tempo versus inevitability. Uh, does your deck win fast or can it survive and stabilize out? And then there's redundant versus essential. Um, does your deck have a lot of cards that do the same thing? Or are there few important pieces that need to be functioned? Uh, and all decks need to answer these questions. Hmm. You know, what is the person? Are, are, you you know, are you a deck that's going to rely mostly on threats? To where you're going to play a bunch of threats and you're just kind of kind of overwhelm your opponent, or are you going to play a deck that relies heavily on answers? You know, uh, the the exalted deck that I'm doing, I am really focusing on threats, not so much on answers. I'll have a couple answers because you can't build a deck that completely negates both mm -hmm. or negates one or the other. But all decks are going to need to look at this. You know, threats versus answers. Which way you're going to lean? Tempo versus inevitability. Which way are you going to lean? Redundant versus essential. Which way are you going to lean when you're building that deck? And and how does that archetype tend to lean in the long run? So for a couple of examples, we picked the like main like archetypes that like the four big archetypes that that you see. And so how it's broken down is, for aggro, it focuses on threats, tempo, and redundant. So what that means is every card is a threat, and it does the same thing, deal damage. That's pretty much it. Now, the flip side to aggro is control, Joe. Well, control decks, instead of coming out the gate swinging like an aggro deck does and aggro decks have very little late game opportunities you're really you're throwing things out there early you might have a couple really big hitters later in the game that are high mana cost but control looks to remove those threats early rather than coming out the gate swinging they're going to have a lot of answers to threats uh, they're going to have a lot of board wipes, maybe spot removal, bouncing cards, counter spells are kind of the quintessential idea when it comes to a control deck. Control decks are, are built to survive the early game. That doesn't mean that you're going to survive with 20 life. You're going to take some damage, all right? but you will make it to the end where you can stabilize the game, control what's happening, and then you're going to be able to play a couple big heavy-hitting bombs right at the very end. Uh, one of the great examples was the uh, the Azorius control deck that was popular last year, in last year's standard. You had a lot of great blue-white cards, and then the big heavy hitter was, oh, what is that? It was that uh, that big Sphinx, uh, the Dream Trawler. Oh, yeah. Dream Trawler from Theros Beyond Death. It was the thing that came in and just and ended up winning the game after you'd taken out all your opponent's stuff. So, uh, yeah, control decks. Chris, I know you really like this next style of deck, so go ahead and talk about it. All right, so the next kind of deck type that we're going to be talking about is combo. This one focuses on threats, inevitability, and essentials. So each combo piece is not a threat and by itself, but there's a high degree of inevitability to a deck that can flat out win the game if all the pieces are together. 
There's not, it's not as redundant as an aggro deck um, due to each combo piece being essential and few to no possible replacements. Um, now let's let's be clear too. When we're talking about redundancy, all right, we're not talking about having multiple copies of the same card as being redundant. We're talking about different cards doing something similar. Yes. So you may have two or three different cards that try to do the same thing in an aggro deck, whether that's as simple as being a cheap creature that deals damage or uh, a direct damage spell. Here, when we're talking about, you know, essentially and not having redundancy, it means you have four copies of one card that is meant to do one thing, and that's that's it. <laughs> that's its only purpose. So, uh, to put an analogy to that, um, redundant cards are like didn't say please and thought collapse. Yes. Both of them are, they're essentially the same card, but they just have different names. They both counter spells and... So I think they literally are the, the same ability. Yeah. <laughs> uh, counter, uh, counter target spell, it's controller, mills two. Or three, two or three. Yeah, yeah, they, something like that. But they, they yeah, mill counter spell and mill cards. Yeah, yeah. They, for the same mana cost. Yeah, <laughs> it's literally the same card, just different names, which I like for my mill deck because then that means I get to have eight counter spells. Yeah, like eight spells that also mill. So you can see how that's redundant. Now redundant cards are like the thought collapses and didn't say please, but one that's different is just a straight up counter spell. Mm-hmm. There's, it's still kind of doing the same thing, but it's not the same card. Yeah, three cards. Yep. And then the the fourth one that we want to cover is mid range. This one focuses on threats, inevitability, and redundancy. It's the flip side to control deck that trades answers for threats. Um, now with it being a mid range deck, these ones are these decks are usually strongest mid to late mid, game. Yeah, mid to late game. They come out swinging a little earlier than the control decks, but they're not anywhere near as early as the aggro decks. Mm-hmm. They, they take a little time to set up, but once they set up, about mid game, you're going to start inter- having some issues with if you're playing a, a mid-range deck. So since we have the four main all-encompassing types talk, talked about, we're actually going to talk about, like, a few of the more prominent decks that are within each category. Um, so we'll start this one off with aggro. One of my favorites is always white weenies. It's a lot of low-costing, weak creatures that is meant to overwhelm the board, uh, overwhelm, like flood the board and overwhelm your opponent with a lot of low-costing, low-to-the-ground creatures. And with it being white weenies, that's... Yeah, usually in the color white, you know. But this this was one of the decks that I really liked to play when I was first getting started. A nice white weenie deck. Uh, I'm building some teaching decks for our local game store, and it was one of the decks that I built. A white weenie deck. It's really easy to play, not overly complex. Allows people to get in and go to combat, which is what they like to do anyway when playing the game. People like the combat step. So, yeah, white weenie deck. And if you want to add more colors into a white weenie deck, then it makes it from a white weenie deck into a zoo, which that's what your exalted deck is going to be. More or less, yeah. It's a zoo. 
So you, it's yeah. a it's a multicolor weenie deck with a couple of big guys in it, but well, actually, I'm, I would be calling it Bant Exalted, but yeah, you know, but the color the color combination, and then yeah, it's based off of the Exalted ability, yeah, you know, to give uh, people the idea. Yeah, but it's still a zoo. Yeah. Oh yeah, it is because it'll have multiple colors. So the next type of aggro deck we want to talk about focuses around the ability Affinity. Now, I was actually around. All right, when when this deck archetype was developed, and it it immediately took over. I mean, it it was huge. Uh, Ravager Affinity, which is the name for where this affinity idea comes from, it, it used the card Arcbound Ravager as the main sort of win condition, and then the affinity mechanic. It took over to the point that you know the the Arcbound Ravager got banned and. It was just, yeah, it was a giant mess. Everyone wanted to play Ravager Affinity. So this type of aggro deck focuses on using the affinity mechanic, using low-costing artifacts, to be able to play their heavy-hitting artifacts faster. Usually appears in the colors blue or red, but really, when this deck was popular, blue was about the only color that went along with it. We didn't have red affinity cards. So... You, you essentially just pay you you play a bunch of cheap uh, cheap costing artifacts usually something that costs zero so we're talking our ornithopters we're talking uh, or welding jars very cheap cards um, and then you're going to drop cards that have affinity for artifacts so you're gonna play your frog mites you're gonna cast your uh, your thought cast <laughs> all right eventually you have so many artifacts that have hit the field you're going to play a card like Arcbound Ravager, sacrifice those artifact creatures to make the Ravager really big, swing in with the Ravager. You know, once your opponent has, you get their creatures out of the way and you've just got this one huge creature on the board, you throw in some blue counter spells to keep yourself protected. And it, it was an incredibly aggressive and very fast, very fast deck. Chris, I know you really like this last deck archetype, so go ahead and talk about it. So this last one is Mono Black Life as a Resource. Um, this one has decks. Uh, this one has cards in it that usually have you pay life to get something out of it. Um, for instance, uh, Phyrexian Arena, you get to draw a card but lose one life. And this deck uses your life total as a way to gain advantage over your opponent. There's usually some life gain into it. Uh, built into it but not always and usually you're trying to benefit off of your life loss to help further the game um quicker quicker yes. than your opponent yes. yeah you're, you're using your life as a way to gain resources over your opponent to simply just overwhelm them faster um like there's a lot of uh uh there's a demon card i can't remember off the top of my head um, but it alternate casting costs is you sacrifice three green uh, three black creatures and pay six life rather than pay six mana and three black. There you so go. So you you so you lose six. So you're taking six life. Uh, Another great example of a black card that does something. Like this is actually the card Grizzlebrand. Uh, Grizzlebrand got banned uh, uh, in, in a couple different formats. Well, sorry, he's only banned in um, Commander. 
He's just not legal in other ones. But he has pay seven life, draw seven cards. I mean, this is a classic black ability that goes into decks like that. You're paying life, you're getting a benefit in return. This deck in particular, it's it's a foreign concept, especially to a lot of less experienced players. I know when I first started playing, one of the the main goals I had in mind was your life total has to stay up nice and high. If your life total starts to sink, that's a sign that you're losing. It just puts you closer to losing the game overall. Keep that life total up. I love to play life gain decks because of that. But as I've become more experienced, you know, I, I have learned. Using your life as a resource is extremely important, and it is just another wonderful resource you can use to help win you the game. And Mono Black does a great job at that. And a good Mono Black um, life as a resource card is Bolas' Citadel, where you get to literally play the top card of your library by paying life instead of its mana cost. So yeah. if you have a lot of low-costing things, you can get a lot out of it. But if you have a, but if you have a couple of like big things, it's gonna hurt. But usually there's payoff for it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, my favorite combination is uh, playing a lot of low-costing cards with uh, either Flux Reservoir, yes, and Bolas' Citadel. That way. Even though you're casting spells, um, you're negating the life loss from casting it with Bolas by gaining it from either Flux or mm-hmm. Reservoir. And so you could end up netting life the more cards you play from the top. And so it's just using your life as a resource. And I just thought of that off the top of my head right now. And yeah. I. I need to put an either Flux Reservoir into my Conrad deck. <laughs> and a top. Uh, so, you think we've covered aggro deck archetypes pretty yep. well? Let's move on to our next type, which is control. Now, we have a couple up here that we're going to talk about, but really, we have just various colors, color combinations for control decks. So, we have a mono blue control. You typically see mono black control. You see blue white control or Azorius control. And then you see blue white black or Esper control. All of these try to control the game in some way. A mono blue deck uses cards that are only blue. They control the game early with a lot of removal disruption spells and then win the game at the end with big bombing, you know, big bomb cards that are difficult for your opponent to overcome. The mono black deck is similar, but it uses only black removal disruption spells, so it tends to uh, kill things quicker, you know, simply kill opponent or uh, kill your opponent's creatures or put enchantments on them that make them so weak it's not worth attacking, whereas the mono blue tends to counterspell or tap down creatures permanently so that they can't do anything. But then again, you're bringing in big bomb creatures at the end. The Azorius and the Esper control decks tend to work similarly. You're just using the different removal options and the different big bomb creature options at your disposal. Sometimes you might have a big enchantment that allows you to win the game, but usually you're you're using removal spells, disruption spells at the beginning of the game, and a big bomb at the end. It just depends on what your color combination is, what you're doing. But there's another type of control deck that is uh, is notorious, especially in the commander world. Chris, tell us about stacks. All right, so stacks is a deck type that has, that creates a series of continuous control effects 
with the end result of to limit the options that your opponents have for each turn. Uh, it gets its name from Smokestack, which is a artifact that costs four mana. At the beginning of your upkeep, you may put a soot counter on Smokestack. At the beginning of each player's upkeep, that player sacrifices a permanent for each soot counter on soot stack. So what you're doing is you're just limiting what they can do by removing everything that they have. Yeah. Now, if you But that's not the only type of stack stack. It's yeah. simply where it got its name. Yeah. You know, but you're putting so many restrictions on the other players, it just becomes so oppressive to play against a deck like that. Uh, a good builder that uses a stacks type deck will have things in their deck that negates them the effects. Um, so things that make it to where they can't like sacrifice creatures or anything to that nature. Their goal is to have the oppressive um, abilities on only their opponent while they're still able to do whatever they want. Right. So after talking about control... Let's go into combo. I'm going to take the first one because I have a little bit of it in one of the decks that I'm building. And this is Storm. Uh, these decks focus on the Storm mechanic and take advantage of it by casting a lot of low-costing spells to build up their Storm count in order to turn all of that little, all those little spells into a lot of damage. Typically seen in either red blue or mono red um me personally i enjoy storm i enjoy storm decks because especially mono red because lava dart you pay one red deal one damage and then whenever it's in the graveyard you can actually sacrifice that land that mountain that you used to pay for it to recast it so then you get two storm count so you get two spells on that turn to increase your storm count and you can just turn a grape shot into I think I did did the math and if you do all four grape shots sorry if you do all four lava darts playing from hand and then from the graveyard you need six mana to deal 16 damage sorry 17 damage and while we're talking about this particular archetype we should mention what Storm does, because we haven't talked about Storm as an ability yet. So just for our listeners' clarification, Storm is an ability that shows up on some cards, and it originally came out in the uh, Scourge yep. set. All right, The Scourge set. Uh, I was around for that one, too. And again, Storm was all the rage. Uh, Storm is an ability that says, when you cast this spell copy it for each other spell that was cast before it this turn. Uh, and if a spell has any targets, you may choose new targets for any of the copies. So again, with that storm combo, you're working to get a bunch of little spells off or very cheap spells so that then at the end, you can create this one big massive spell with storm where you're creating a bunch of copies and usually dealing damage without having to spend a ton of extra mana to do it. So yeah, very efficient. Very efficient, and usually those kind of decks are not cheap to run, as in financially. <laughs> and the best part of all is, it's not just your spells for that turn that count That's towards true. the storm count. It's also your opponent's spells. Yeah. All right, Joe, I've talked enough about storm. Let's get artsy. 
All right, so we have another combo that is a little bit more of a classic idea of a combo where we have a couple cards that interact in a certain way that cause a loop that just continues to go again and again and again because of the way the abilities interact. And this is really what people think of when they think of a combo deck. So the one we're going to talk about is Grindstone Painter's, or Painter's Servant combo. So it, it involves two cards, Grindstone and Painter's Servant. Here's how the combo works. First, you cast Painter's Servant, and when it resolves, one of its abilities tells you to name a color. At this point, all cards not in play are the chosen color. That being said, you are assuming you already have Grindstone on the field. If you don't, you need to, of course, play Grindstone as well. Your next step is to activate Grindstone. Grindstone is an artifact that costs one, and it has an activated ability. Three, tap, target player puts the top two cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard. If both cards share a color, repeat this process. Because Painter's Servant has made all cards in the deck one color, all of the cards now will meet that second requirement for Grindstone. So the Grindstone ability will automatically repeat, causing your opponent to mill their entire deck. Very cheap. Uh, as in mana cost, very cheap, efficient combo. The, and it only requires two cards. You can get it out and get it moving. So, Chris, tell us about the next combo that we're going to discuss. So this is one combo that I actually have in a couple of my decks. I have just never been able to get it to go off because nobody <laughs> wants me to do it. Because It is a very mean combo. It is mean, and it is a pseudo-infinite loop. Right. Because with the whole comp rules, if you create an infinite loop you are the one that loses the game correct uh okay so if if there is an infinite loop that doesn't cause one player to lose and the active player and no player can interrupt it and stop it the game ends in a draw ah. all right uh this particular combo that you're going to discuss though is it, it does create a loop that can be activated infinitely it just it has a, a point where you are able to respond to the ability at every time it's activated. So this combo is the Heliod Walking Ballista combo. So it focuses on Heliod the Suncrowned, which is a legendary enchantment creature god for two and a white. Indestructible, um, has the Devotion Clause, but that isn't important. What is important is... Whenever you gain life, you put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature or enchantment you control. And then for one in a white, another target creature gains lifelink until end of turn. Where that comes in is with Walking Ballista. So what you want to do is pay four mana for Walking Ballista because it enters with X plus one, plus one counters on it. Mana cost is XX. Um, and you can remove a plus one plus one counter from Walking Ballista to deal one damage to any target. So how this works is you play, you have Heliod out, then you play Walking Ballista, making sure that he has at least two counters on him, so that you can pay two mana for Heliod to give him lifelink, remove a counter to deal one damage to your opponent. Because he has lifelink, you will gain life, 
which will then put a plus one plus one counter back onto him. So you can just sit there and repeatedly remove plus one plus one counters from him while he has lifelink to gain life, put counters on him, ping your opponent, gain life, put a counter back on him, rinse and repeat. And repeat as many times as you need to win the game. Yeah, um, we actually, when I was playing you know, back in high school, we actually had a similar version of this combo using the card Mephidros Vampire and Triskillian. Now, it couldn't go against the opponent. Mephidros Vampire had the clause whenever this creature deals damage to a creature, put a plus one plus one counter on this creature. So the Triskillian has a similar ability. You can pull a counter off to deal one damage to something. Uh, so, of course, I was able to... I, I did get to play this combo a couple times, uh, and my, my opponents hated it every time because immediately they were not playing any more creatures, and then I could swing in for the win. But that, that combo has become extremely popular in various formats, and you, know, you like to play it. You know, so it's, it is just a standard kind of... you got to expect this kind of combo to go off, and all of a sudden you could very easily have your opponent go infinite, and the game is over. So... That covers our last combo. So now we're going to finish finish it off with mid-range. I actually built a popper version of this deck. All right. And so I'm going to take this one. And this is Tron. Um, you can either call it Tron or Urza Tron. What it focuses on is... Um, the three Urza lands, which is Urza's Mine, Urza's Power Plant, and Urza's Tower. Now, by themselves, they each land only provides one colorless mana. But if you have all three of them out, um, Urza's Mine will tap for two instead of for one. Urza's Power Plant will again tap for two instead of one mana. And Urza's Tower will tap for three instead of one. So if you have all three of the Urza lands out, um, you'll be netting seven mana for three lands. And what that enables you to do is to use all of the mana that you are um, able to generate from all of those is to cast big creatures. Um, what I did was... I built one of the common popper versions of this, which was Eldrazi Tron. So it was a lot of... I had all the Tron lands into it, place out of each, and then I had things like Hand of Emrakul and uh, Pathraiser of Ulamog. Mm -hmm. So a lot of, like, Pathraiser is an 11-11 for 11. Hand of Ulamog is... Sorry... Hand of Emrakul is uh, a 9-9 nine, nine for 9. But with having the, the Tron lands out, you can very efficiently get them to come into play mm -hmm. a lot sooner ahead of Curve. And so you just use that big mana base to get big creatures out, and you just have fun with that. Now, Tron does encompass a lot of different decks. It's just that... Tron is mostly used as like a shell term. Yes. So like how I said it, I built Eldrazi Tron. Yes. I was able to describe what it is. It's a Tron style deck with Eldrazi creatures in it, which makes it very fun. 
Now, Joe, take this one. So the last type of mid-range deck we're going to talk about is a tempo deck. Uh, tempo decks can be in any color. There's nothing that's very particular. But tempo decks, are, they sort of control the pace of the game. Not to the extent that a control deck does. It, and it's not trying to like eliminate threats immediately. It's simply using the mana most efficiently to create the optimal plays that will allow you to, in the mid to late part of the game, really bring out some of your more efficient creatures and some of your bigger heavy hitters. Uh, while using your early part of the game you know, to really sort of like establish everything and build things up. Maybe you're establishing resources. Maybe you are removing some threats from your opponent. But you're not focusing on going like all out like an aggro deck. You're not waiting until the very end like a control deck. You're really paying attention to how the game is unfolding and using your options the best way you can in order to control the pace of the game. And again, you're really looking at going at the middle of the game, that's when you're going to start to really let things unfold and you're going to bring out some of your bigger heavy hitters. Uh, again, it doesn't have a specific color combination or anything that's really good. A lot of people will they'll, they'll find a color combination that tends to be best in maybe that particular format so maybe for limited it's different than standard and it's different than pioneer different than modern um, but yeah that kind of gives you an idea of tempo so we're we're not talking about a specific type of tempo deck it's more like a larger concept of how to control the pace of the game when i was getting back into magic around the, like ixalan block type time frame um I remember I was at work, I was working third shift, and on my lunch break, I was watching the Magic Finals, the Magic cool. World Finals, and it was I, it was a mono-red aggro, which was red deck wins, right. versus mono-blue control. Sorry, mono-blue temple. Temp, tempo. Bleh. Mono-blue tempo. And it was really fascinating to watch because it's... A red deck going up against... So it's an aggro versus a temp, tempo. And the tempo one, tempo deck wasn't... Like, it was answering threats, but it wasn't doing it, like, in a control fashion. It was more of a, I'll let you have it, but if you do something with it, you're going to lose it type deal thing. So, um, so p sort of picking the mo the most important threats rather than trying to answer every single threat like a control deck really wants mm -hmm. to do. It was picking the most important threats at the time and saying, all right, I need to either eliminate that now or when it finally becomes an issue, we're going to get rid of it. And that was a, if I remember correctly, it was because it was world and it was the finals. It was best of five. Okay. They weren't allowed to sideboard until after game three. Oh wow! And so, like you, you were just watching them go back and forth. Mm -hmm. I, I can't remember how it ended off the top of my head. All I remember is watching a mono blue, uh, tempo deck, go up against a red deck wins, and it was just like there was no way to tell who had the clear advantage without that is really interesting oh yeah. it was it was absolutely fun to watch did i stay a little late for lunch to you know kind of <laughs> watch a little bit more yes did i have my phone up and playing while i was 
you know, kind of doing my job, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to watch it because that was the first time that I really wanted to watch it. Yeah. And it was just absolutely hilarious. But I do know who won. Yep. Blue Tempo. Nice. Nice. And so, well, I actually kind of lied. That wasn't the last one we were talking about. That's true. We do have one more that we'd like to discuss, and it's kind of, it, it's near and dear to both of our hearts, and it's probably near and dear to a lot of you uh, you newer players. Chris, tell us about it. So, this is what we are calling a good stuff deck. Now, what I mean by that is, I don't mean like it's like just the good stuff that you can go out and buy and throw it together and you know hope that well it, i mean it, it is uh, i mean it is <laughs> you do find that too but what the but what we mean by good stuff in this sense is for players that are just now starting their collections and just starting to play magic they don't really have enough cards to build like actual archetype decks yeah these ones are more you have a bunch of cards and one or two colors that you like that you think are very powerful that you just like playing and you just put them into a deck does it work all the time no no but do you have fun playing it yes yes you do and that's how i my the first box i ever bought my first booster box was from alar reborn back in 2009 or 2008 somewhere in that time yeah and a friend of mine and I sat down, and he was like, it, for lack of better words, we started it off with a BuzzFeed quiz. Like, he was asking me questions to try and figure out what colors matched my personality. Okay. And that's why I landed on red-green. That's why I landed on gruel, just because it matched my personality. Mm-hmm. And so we then opened up all the packs and everything, and we went through all the cards and, <laughs> and just as- found a bunch of them that were <laughs> and, and, and set aside all the red green cards and was like okay what do we have all right this is what i have i put it together i took fourth at my first friday night magic which is awesome i was like this is fun and then i'm playing against the guy and i'm like hey can i look through your rare binder and he was like sure i'm going through and you know he had like a time walk Oh, nice. And a Black Lotus. Nice. Just sitting in his binder. Yeah. I'm like... Nice. There's my there, there's my entire tuition sitting uh, right yeah. there. Oh. When we talk about good stuff decks, too, we really don't mean this to be a derogatory term by any means. There are a lot of people out there that play good stuff decks. Commander players have good stuff decks where it it isn't anything where that's really tied to a specific mechanic. It's just a bunch of good cards that are collectively so good that they tend to overpower your opponents. You don't see it quite as much in standard, pioneer, modern, vintage legacy because there are so many more focused approaches that can just overpower and, and outrace uh, a good stuff deck but commander you do see good stuff decks that come around typically not as frequently for a variety of other reasons but a lot of people start off their first couple decks they are good stuff decks it's the best things you have you enjoy playing it i know my first good stuff deck was 90 cards 
<laughs> All right. Didn't even stick to that 60 card minimum. I'm just like, you know what? No, I want to play this, and I want to play this, and I want to play this. You know, we all start off there. And really, even even when you get to, um, like, sealed events and draft events, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes your sealed pool, you open up all your packs, and it's just, there's nothing that really synergizes together well, so you're running a good stuff deck. These are the best cards you have to pick from in these two colors. Let's see what sticks. You know, I honestly, with pre-release for Forgotten Realms last weekend, I really felt like both of my decks were simply good stuff decks. This is what I have. It's the best that I can put cobble together in these colors. Let's run it. Draft. Sometimes you're drafting and you just are not able to get the picks that you need. Somebody else is drafting you know, the same colors as you on the opposite side of the table. They're getting the cards before you. You just can't make it work. You, your colors aren't coming up. You ended up trying to switch colors halfway through the draft, and that isn't working either. So you cobble together a good stuff deck. Sometimes they work out. Sometimes they don't. All right. I mean, it, it, it is what it is, you know. But that, that's an important archetype that people really need to pay attention to as well because sometimes they can just come out of nowhere and get you. Well, Chris, I think we've discussed archetypes quite a bit for quite, at quite some length. <laughs> And because this has been such a long episode, Joe and I have decided that uh, there's going to be no extended reading for this episode. And we're going to skip questions again. And skip questions again. But, like I said at the top of the episode, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, run a deck idea past us. Um, you can email us at mtgunderthehood at gmail.com, Facebook, mtgunderthehood, and Twitter at mtgunderthehood. I am also toying with the idea of creating a Discord server that is still very much in the baby steps phase. I'm still trying to get my head around that, so look for that in the near future, or in the future. But as always, thank you for listening to this episode of Magic the Gathering Under the Hood. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. We look forward to delving deeper under the hood with you in our next episode. Stay tuned.